cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Riston Net's podcast on quant finance. With me, Mauro Cesar, quant finance editor of Riston Net, and with Helen Bartholomew, our London bureau chief. Hi, Helen. Thanks for teaming up with me today. Thanks, Mauro. Great to be here. Uh, Helen, you've been reporting on the LIBOR transition since the beginning of the demise of LIBOR. So it's great to have you and your expertise on the subject for this interview with our guest. Our guest is Mark Henrard, Managing Partner at New Risk Advisory. Hi, Mark. Hi. How are you? I'm very good. And welcome back. Thank I think you. three and a half years after the first time. Yeah, and it was also related to LIBOR. It was discussion with Fabio Mercurio. Indeed, indeed. Exactly. Mark, you have recently published a paper with us titled Swap Rate Cash Settled Swaptions in the Fallback, in which you present some solutions and price approximations for legacy swaption contracts um, under the fallback rates, obviously. Um, I will start like this. Um, At the beginning of your paper, I read LIBOR swap rate fallbacks are transforming vanilla swaptions into exotics. Could you talk us through what that means and uh, could you briefly give us a bit of a, a background on the, on the transition that has led us to this change? Yeah, so to answer the question, maybe I will go back one step, which is before the swap rate, there is LIBOR transition. So LIBOR transition is, if we make it simple, there was one LIBOR rate that we are replacing in the fallback by overnight compounded plus a spread. That is for one LIBOR payment. So now we have swaps, which should be easy because a swap is multiple LIBOR payment. But, (laughs) there is a but, uh, which is those swaps have those LIBOR payments, which are in different conventions, in different frequencies. When we want to replace one swap rate, we cannot just take the spread that was in the LIBOR payments and add it to the swap rate. We have to do something a little bit more complex. For a quant, it's relatively easy, but it involves curve calibration, interpolation, and those kind of things. Now, from a legal perspective, as a rate option in ISDA master agreement, for example, it's quite more complex. You have to replace one rate by one rate. And that's what the working groups did, is to find a approximative uh, formula that replace one rate, today OIS rate, uh, sorry, LIBOR rate in the past, by one of today's rate, OIS rate. So a function of OIS is the old LIBOR. And the problem is to deal with this change of convention, change of frequency. We have to introduce not so simple function. Typically, uh, the swap rates are semi-annual. Sorry, the LIBOR swap rates are semi-annual. The OIS are annual. You have to go from annual to semi-annual. That means square root of one plus the rate, something like that. Mm-hmm. So in those formulas, you have square roots. And typically, uh, vanilla instruments don't have square roots in their payoff. And that's where the exotics starts. 
what is a payoff of an option with a square root. And that's the starting point, the exotic part of this question. Hmm. Uh, a consequence of the transition, as you explained in the paper, is that with the fallback rates, uh, the pricing of options with physical delivery and the pricing of uh, the cash settled ones now is different. Um, can you explain how that turns out to be the case? Yes, and it's somehow embedded in my first answer in the sense that uh, physical delivery, you receive a swap. So you receive a set of payments which are linked to the LIBOR uh, fallback. And that, it's, the description is clear, you, do, you receive multiple payments. On the cash settle side, you receive one payment that has to be computed somehow, and it is computed from this swap rate, and it involves this approximation, this nonlinear function. So on one side, you have a transformation, a transition, a fallback, which is multiple payment with LIBOR fallback. On the other side, one payment with something which is similar fallback, but not exactly the same. And uh, that's a couple of basis points here and there. So it's not huge, but it's not small either. Uh, that's why there is the difference. One side you have LIBOR payment, and on the other side, swap rate payment. I see. Uh, another observation you make is that uh, the annuities, uh, there's the annuities mismatch between LIBOR swaps and cash status options. Uh, and there's the convex convexity adjustment that uh, comes from it. Can you explain what that adjustment is and uh, what are the consequences of it? Yeah, so the uh, swaption payment is the swap rate. Let's say for uh, when the swap rate is above the strike, multiplied by the annuity. In the past, it was clear what annuity meant. There is one LIBOR convention, one annuity computed with LIBOR, let's say semi-annual convention. Now we move to OIS, where again, different convention, annual payment. Now, if we multiply the swap rate by the LIBOR annuity in the LIBOR swap, when we fall back, we still have the LIBOR annuity unchanged, but the rate is now the OIS transformed. The annuity, what it is, it is simply the swap rate, which is paid at different date, multiplied by some accrual uh, factor. So it plays the role of bringing the payment of the swap from their natural payment to today. So they embed the dates and the amount paid. So if you change the annuity, or in our case, you keep the LIBOR annuity but you change the rate to an OIS rate, you get an unnatural annuity for the OIS rate, which means a not natural payment. And that's what we call in the technical sense, convexity adjustment, timing adjustment. So what we, are, we see in CMS, in futures, and the LIBOR in arrears and those kind of products. So due to this uh, split between the annuity part of the payoff and the swap rate, we saw those uh, convexity adjustment coming in. I see. Uh, 
So far, you've been describing the challenges, but obviously your paper uh, is uh, is being written to propose a number of pricing methodologies for uh, cash settles options with collateralized discounting. Uh, without going into uh, details um, uh, too deeply, uh, for that we'll uh, invite readers and listeners to to check the the paper. But without uh, without going too much into the maths, can you outline what are the main proposals that uh, you included in the paper? Yeah, and maybe I will summarize it in one word, which is one that I used a little bit before, which is CMS. Mm-hmm. CMS have existed for a long time, and they are paying a swap rate, things we still have now in this question, on the wrong date, being, again, it's a one payment instead of regular payment of the swap rate. And now we have something a little bit more complex because there is a change of annuity and so on, but it's the same idea. One swap rate paid in the incorrect dates. And we have a mechanism that has been used for a long time about pricing CMS by replication. So this is a mechanism that was used before CMS for other products, going back to Car and Madame, Madame, sorry, uh, which is uh, replicating one payoff by a continuous accumulation of payoff of vanilla uh, instruments. So that's what I did. Uh, take the paper about CMS and rewrite it with a little bit of changes and adding this uh, change of annuity and this nonlinear part. But the bulk of it is uh, CMS pricing. So if you have in your libraries CMS pricing, mm-hmm. you can embed, change it a little bit and get uh, those uh, type of products priced. So you're suggesting that the implementation of, of this is straightforward if you have a CMS you know, framework already in place. Is it very complicated if you if you don't? Do you have to build it up from scratch? Yes, you have to. <laughs> if you want to embed this change of annuity, this convexity adjustment, and the nonlinear payoff, then you have to go and do this type of replication. Uh, yes. Uh, I see. To some extent, I don't know if we discuss later that, uh, but uh, in the paper, I show some uh, linear approximation. So removing all the complexity that are working quite well. And in the meantime, before between the, uh, writing the paper six months ago and today, I did some uh, more s- analysis of that and found that this linear approximation actually have a reason to be there and are good uh, for some reason. And uh, I've extended uh, not the paper itself, mm-hmm. but the explanation of why the linear approximation are working well. Uh, so if you are not a market maker, but just have two of those swaptions in your books, maybe you can skip the difficult part, but still read some of the paper to, <laughs> <laughs> to see how to make it simple. Uh, going back to the convexity adjustment. Uh, so that is uh, quantifiable in a few basis points, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, can you give some examples uh, to uh, understand the uh, the actual size of it and uh, uh, can you explain how impactful you think it is for price takers and for market makers yeah we have obviously to define price takers but 
take the example that you have a couple of those swaptions in your book and you plan to keep them. So do you want for one or two basis points of implied volatility to create or to develop one of those methodology that maybe you don't have CMS, so you don't have that in your library. And just for those products that are now in your books, but will never come back because it's the fallback. So it will happen in uh, no in sterling and later uh, next year in dollar, but it will never happen again. So you will never buy or trade those again. So there I would say not really. Mm. Now, if you plan, if you have a large book with those and you plan to try to cancel them, change them or uh, uh, cancel them, then maybe uh, more as a market maker, even if you have one swap, if you try to, uh, one swaption, if you try to cancel it, you are becoming a market maker. At least mm -hmm. you need to understand the price. That's more there that you have to be careful, not keeping the trades, but when you want to cancel them or uh, uh, do something specific uh, with them. And obviously, if you are a real market maker and you have thousands of those swaps in your books, then those uh, small adjustments can accumulate, uh, especially that you may have on one side interbank, which are cash settle, uh, uh, end user, which are uh, physical settle. So where those small things, small changes would not cancel between two sides of the book. Mm. That's where it's becoming obviously the most dangerous. I see. And uh, you obviously think uh, firms should adopt uh, the pricing models you developed. Uh, and uh, uh, what was what is your experience about it so far? How are banks uh, managing the legacy contracts in, from what you can see? Maybe I, I will come back to the first part of oh, what is what was before your question. And you say that obviously I suggest that this methodology is used and maybe I will surprise you. I will say no, <laughs> I would not <laughs> suggest to use it uh, in the sense that what are we trying to do? Obviously, I'm happy to sell valuation services. And <laughs> if you want to bring me in uh, to Im implement those, I'm happy. But I see myself and quants in general more as risk managers, people helping to manage the risk. And in that sense, I would more suggest to the people that have those cash settle swaption in their books to try to see how to avoid the fallback uh, uh, discuss with their counterparties how to transform them in something which is simpler. I was mentioning earlier that I have done those further analysis about the linear approximation and I've proposed in a working paper which is on SSRN uh, some uh, approximation which are better in some sense to be discussed but at least for the end user, better than what is proposed by the working groups. They are not fitting the same legal framework, but uh, they are better. In that sense, I would recommend not to use a complex methodology on a complex product, but more simplify the product. And here, both sides should be happy to simplify it 
it's not that they wanted to have an exotic product, it's they had a linear one, or not linear, but a vanilla one, and it was transformed, unfortunately, by the fallback to something exotic. Let's go back to a vanilla one, and uh, obviously you have to understand what you are doing, so still you need to pay me a little bit <laughs> and bring me in, uh, but once you understand, you transform it in something simpler. So I would not recommend okay. to use m that methodology, not because it is not good, it's because it's solving a problem that should not exist in the first place. Okay. And what, do you, what do you see happening in the market? I had no real feedback of what people are doing. Uh, I'm not a trader anymore, so I'm not in the market anymore, and people don't speak <laughs> too much about what they do in internally. Uh, but uh, certainly a couple of people told me that they had this similar uh, way to look at this exotic product, no exotic, uh, by this CMS replication. So and that's something I'm quite sure I was not the only one uh, mm -hmm. to, to do it uh, in some way. I see. Uh, Mark, I had some more sort of general questions if, uh, on LIBOR transition. Um, I mean, obviously, it's been a big structural change for a lot of firms. I just wondered, uh, do you think we've addressed the big issues so far? Or are, should we be more concerned about those sort of tail of issues that we're still facing on the horizon? Things like valuation. Uh, let's say from a quantitative perspective, I think hopefully, we as a community of quants have looked at the problem uh, in different ways and we have seen the problem. We have not missed any big problem, so I don't think there is anything hiding really in the tail. You mentioned valuation. Obviously, there is today understanding what is the value of what we have, which is one thing. But something that will never be solved, in my view, is because of the transition, the transformation of the product, values have been transferred between market participants. There was one document by ISDA that said something like five years ago or four years ago, there will be losers and winners. And I think that happened. That will never be solved. Let's say the money has gone from one to the other, but uh, we will never know and we will never try to know uh, what was uh, really the, the money transfer. But in terms of, let's say, quant perspective, I think we have looked uh, at the problems and that there is no, nothing hiding uh, too much. Great. Um, I was uh, lending markets as well. That's been one of the big issues for LIBOR transition. We've moved from this world where credit sensitivity was a crucial element of uh, lending markets. Um, but the market, certainly in the US, seems to be adapting somewhat to SOFA or, or other terms SOFA. Is, do you think that's going to continue to be the case? Or could, we see, could a change in the market environment, rising rates, more volatility, is that potentially problematic when you've got a lending market that's veering off credit sensitive rates? Uh, I think the answer is yes. LIBOR was created for a, a reason, which is banks lend and borrow and they want to do it roughly 
at the same rate or at least not have to be uh, any surprise between the two rates. So LIBOR was created exactly for that. So uh, you fix your uh, lending to a rate where you can borrow. That has not disappeared. The structure of the way banks borrow has changed. So we have seen a decrease of interbank lending. So we don't need to measure everything against LIBOR. LIBOR does not exist anymore, something similar. But I believe it's still uh, a useful uh, benchmark and that uh, some credit-sensitive derivatives lending will still exist. Mm -hmm. We have not seen it really yet. There is a couple of indices that are taking a little bit, but it's a very small portion of the market. Personally, I'm expecting it to increase again and to be used at least in part uh, for the lending. And do you think that increase would just be because those benchmarks become better known, get more traction, or would it actually potentially be, would it be a change in market conditions or a sort of more volatility that would trigger that? Uh, I don't know what will trigger it. Obviously, today they are not so well known, uh, there is no uh, liquidity and, and so on. Uh, and maybe uh, economy is a cyclical thing. And then in five years time, someone will notice that ALM <laughs> means asset and liability and that you have to match them. That So we will go back to the 70s where LIBOR was invented and we will notice again that it was useful. So I don't know when it will come, but I'm still expecting it to come at some stage. Great. So TermSofa seems to be the benchmark that's getting all the traction in SOFA, in SOFA lend, US lending markets. Um, can we talk a little bit about that methodology? It's been endorsed by the working group. Um, how robust is that methodology? It's based on futures contracts. Uh, we have to define what robust means. So let me start but what is not my, <laughs> uh, my focus, which is the regulatory side, uh, the governance and so on. So there is one side there, and I believe that uh, those, uh, this particular term software is robust there. I believe it because I don't know too much about it. But there is the other side, which is the trader perspective. What does robust mean? For me, if I was on a trading desk, robust means that it's a product that I can edge. So if I have one side linked to term software, I want to, be, to go in the market and be able to edge it easily. And there, uh, using futures leads to something which, to my opinion, is not robust in that sense. If you take the methodology, which is used by CME or by others, you take futures and then interpolate somehow between the futures to get the one month, three months, six months. This interpolation is an arbitrary cho choice. There are reasons to do it that way, but it's quite arbitrary and it's unedgeable. So you put a fixed rate between FOMC meetings. If you look today at software, it's not constant. In this environment, it's moving by a couple of basis points up to five basis points. In the past, it had moved. We had some uh, cases where it moved by a couple of percent. So 
already there, <laughs> there is uh, something which is not very good. If I'm correct, term software is published to up to the precision of 1000 of a basis point, while software is to the precision of one basis point, and it's moving by a couple of basis points from one day to the next. So on one side, we have something which 1000 of a basis point precise, based on things we know are unprecise to a couple of basis points. So in that sense, it cannot be robust in the edging uh, part. And plus, if I remember correctly, the current version takes the price of the futures not at a fixed point in time, but some kind of average during the day. How do you edge an average, a volume average during the day? As a trader, you don't know what will be the moment of the trades and so on. So you cannot edge that uh, daily thing. For my point of view, again, as a trader edging, the LIBOR mechanism, which is at 11 o'clock, you fix something, is a lot better. And that's what is probably level, level one or level two in the uh, waterfall. So we are at level three, which is futures. If we were to go to level one, which is interbank uh, trading on electronic platform, maybe we can reach back and get uh, this edgeability and the potential edge of those rates. Um, so there is there is obviously an alternative rate um, based on an uh, alternative term SOFA based on OIS. It, do you see that as a more robust way of creating a term rate? Yes, in the, again, quant trader side, or more trader in this case, something I can edge. Yes, if I know if it is marked at uh, 11 o'clock, I may not get to the last tenth of a basis points the rate, but to a couple of tenths of a basis points, I know I can edge. I go in the market, it's liquid enough, hopefully liquid enough, uh, it's getting there. I can trade and edge, so I can offer risk management service, which is what banks should do to their clients. You can have term software, and I will edge in the in arrear software without a problem. Obviously, it will cost me a little bit, but a tenth, two tenths of a basis points not five basis points. So regulators have probably got a big decision coming up soon. They're talking about potentially creating a synthetic LIBOR to deal with tough legacy contracts for the US, uh, for US uh, contracts. Um, on the one hand, they could choose the CME rate, which is the one that is very, very widely used and endorsed by the working group. On the other hand, you've got this um, ICE benchmark administration OIS-based rate. Which one should they choose? <laughs> I have answered, at least from my opinion, uh, in the sense that uh, it will be used, uh, I don't know exactly what for, but uh, as a rate inside some products, tough legacy products, and if I want to edge it as a bank, on one side, I'm forced into the synthetic LIBOR. I want to have something I can uh, deal with uh, not in a not too difficult way. Uh, so I would go, I don't care about the provider, I care about the underlying. So I don't remember again the exact detail of CME current one, 
uh, I know how it is done, but I don't remember. I think they have also some kind of waterfall level one, level two, which is based on OIS, but they are not using yet. So maybe in a couple of years, both uh, provider will provide something very similar. And would it matter if a synthetic LIBOR had a different term SOFA as an input to the term SOFA that's being used by the much wider lending market? Uh, yes. Again, to come back to my previous sentence, if both are done on the same methodology, 11 o'clock and so on, it's a little bit of annoying, but not too much. If it is like today, where it's difficult to edge from one to the other, uh, yeah, that would be a, a problem. And beyond the definition of the rate, today there is also the possibility to use it. So the term rate, the term suffer is available for cash, so loan bonds, but there are restrictions on the licensing side and on the regulatory side on using it uh, as a underlying for uh, derivatives. And that's some feedback I had from some clients that their banks don't want to offer them risk management services linked to term software, being on caps and floors or things like that. If you have a loan which is floored at zero usually or something like that, that they cannot really edge it uh, because their banks have restrictions on how to use those rates on top of the underlying fact that uh, it's not trivial uh, to edge it if it is based on uh, some uh, arbitrary interpolation and uh, daily average. Yeah, there are, um, there are talks at the moment going on with the view of potentially relaxing those restrictions, so presumably that would be very helpful. Yeah, if we want to use it, <laughs> uh, you should uh, let people to use it. I understand that you don't want, if you do a transition, to transition to a second level type of benchmark. So term software is based on swap on software. So you don't you want first to have swap on software before going on term software. That I understand. But once it is there, you want to allow people to use it and to edge it, you don't want to make it a cost for the user, the end user, or for the bank. You want to be uh, to able to use it in a free way and to offer the best uh, service out of it. Thanks, Mark. Great to hear your views and to talk about your paper. So thanks very much for joining us today. You're thanks, welcome. Mark. And thanks, Helen. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening.